You're listening to The Community Pulse, a podcast about developer relations, community management, and all things tech advocacy. Let's see what our hosts are chatting about this episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Community Pulse. I'm your host, Mary Thingvall, and I'm joined today by hosts Wesley Faulkner and S.J. Morris. Figuring out what the standard pay is for a DevRel professional can be really difficult, especially when you're considering expectations, experience, and all of the different niche industries within tech. What's the average? What makes sense for the role? What's fair? Those are all questions that come to mind when you're considering compensation for what we do. But luckily, today's guests have gathered some information and crunched some numbers to help you make a more informed approach to what a fair salary is for your role. And with that, I want to hand it over to them to introduce themselves. Jocelyn, do you want to go first? Hi, I'm Jocelyn Matthews. I'm one of the admin team at the DevRel Collective, and I'm so excited to be here today. Uh, We put together this salary survey in the hopes that people will be able to use it as a relatively neutral resource to foster conversations between employees and managers. So we're really excited because uh, this is a resource that's been sorely lacking and I'm super happy to be here talking about it today. Thank you so much. We're excited to have you. And our other guest is Greg. Greg, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Mary. Uh, So yeah, I'm Greg Sutcliffe. My day job is a data scientist in the Ansible project, but I used to be a community manager. And so when Mary put a call out on Twitter saying, hey, we need help with survey analysis, I was like, well, I still have strong feelings for community management. I will dive back in and and see if I can help out there. So that's what I've tried to do. And hopefully the results will be useful to people. I'm really excited to be going through them. Thanks so much, Jocelyn and Greg. We're super excited to have you here. I know I've been waiting with bated breath for the results of this to come out. So really excited to dig in. So I guess we'll just start with the mechanics. I guess we should kick off. Jocelyn, can you tell us a little bit more about data collection and how we went about actually building the survey? Yeah, sure. So we actually had several meetings among the entire admin team to kind of carve out what are some of the things that we've always wondered? What are some of the things that would have been useful to us in having conversations about our careers with other people? And then also looking at some of the existing resources that are out there. For example, taking a look at some of Mary's work on career ladders and stuff like that. When we went ahead and pushed out the survey, we tried to get it as widely disseminated as we could, given the fact that we're a private group. So we're a a Slack that you have to you have to join through an admissions process, which is great because it keeps us really focused and it keeps everything that we do really relevant to active practitioners. But it means that what we do isn't obviously visible to everybody who is a non-member. So we also pushed it out to Dev.2 pushed it out to Twitter, we pushed it to LinkedIn, and tried to really get the word out there as much as possible. And Greg can go into the sampling from the data science side. And the sample that came back was modest. We're looking to increase the amount of responses for the next time around. It's a little bit on the small side. We've got about 2,000 members in our Slack right now, and we've got about something like 150-ish replies about maybe a little over half of those were based in the U.S., which is not surprising because we're mostly a U.S.-based English language group. 
So we're trying to generalize from this data while at the same time being very careful to protect people's anonymity, that this was a big concern that people did not want to be targeted because the, the worst thing would be would be to have this survey turned turned on you, right? So you you might not want people to see all of the raw data and be able to pluck you out. You know, uh, for many of us, if you know a few details about your life, it's very easy to identify someone. You look for their nearest airport, maybe you get a sense of, you know, how many years they've been in the business, their gender. And particularly for marginalized people, the more marginalized you are, the more vulnerable you are to this. So for example, I think I might be the only Black woman in the entire response set. So if you wanted to figure out what I think and how much I make and what I'm saying, it really wouldn't be too hard. So what we did was we went to great pains to anonymize the data. And we tried to make that clear when we were doing the data collection as well. But Greg can speak more to that. Yeah, I'll second that just for a second. I know some of the questions and things that we originally polled when the admin team for DevRel Collective started talking about running the survey were pulled heavily from the work that Alice Noland had done previously with a survey. And that was internal only to the DevRel Collective. And it was a great resource for a long time. But part of the concern was the data was then just available to everybody internally, which was a great way to do it at the time, again, because we had a, a private group. It was smaller at that point and things like that. But we wanted to make sure that as we were putting this data out there for people beyond just who was in the DevRel Collective, that it was anonymized in a way that like Jocelyn said, was protecting the people who had responded and taken the time to, to give us this information. Yeah, and I, I also want to point out as well that the ageism is also rampant in the tech industry. And so we really wanted to not just protect, we wanted to protect against all forms of marginalization. And one of the ways to do that was the approach that we used. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the questions that were asked. I know there were a lot of things, you know, we, we hinted at a couple of those before now, but it was a, a broad range of questions. And what kinds of things did, did we ask people to kind of help frame the data in a way that made sense? That was kind of fun, but also a, a tiny bit nerve wracking because you you know even while you're doing it that hindsight is going to be 2020. So you're trying to kind of crystal ball the future, and you know even as you do it that you're just you know you're trying to push water uphill. But some of the questions that we asked were sort of gut based. Some of them were you know very sort of nuts and bolts and numbers and facts and figures. And that was intentional. So for example, we have one set of questions around compensation. And again, we can talk about compensation. Greg, I know we'll definitely have um, some stuff to say about trying to trying to smush that out into a nice smooth paste. You know, what we what we came down to for compensation was at the end of the day, you might not be able to calculate if you're getting paid more fairly than someone in another country. And the U.S. health system has a lot to do with that because we access healthcare through our jobs and healthcare is prohibitively expensive and yada, yada, yada. So what we came down to was, well, since our healthcare packages just skew everything in the U.S., what everybody can say for themselves, no matter where you, you live, is do you feel good about how much you're making? And you might not know how it all breaks down to every single last penny, but you know if you feel good about what you're making, you know if you feel that you're underpaid, 
and you know if you feel that you're well compensated. There were some really interesting findings there. But that's an example of one of the questions that we use. But then we also dug into what is your actual salary. I'll, I'll leave it there because there's so much to unpack. But if you have any follow-up questions, just let me know. I have a question for, for Greg. This, this is, there's a lot of data here and there's a lot that had to be processed. I mean, there's one thing about presenting the questions and getting those responses. The other is like actually analyzing them to, to bring, get meaningful insights from that data. Greg, what were some of the, the one of the tough things or from working with this data set that you had to crunch yeah. through to actually get that insight? It's t- it's a fun it's a fun challenge, right? I mean, uh, Justin's already pointed out the an- anonymization process, which is important, right? And I've just realized that even even the graph, uh, uh, the very first one that, that I've got in front of me here to start talking through with you, it is a graph of breakdown by country, and there are some countries in there which I will not name, which only have a single entry in, right? Which is also a form of de-anonymization. If you know what country someone's from, now you know what they're paid because <laughs> it's it, there's only one vote there, right? So it's a, it's a really tricky business is trying to keep data private. You've got to uh, group any low categories together in order to tech to get that. So I need to redo that one. But it's, it, there's a lot more to it, right? So the first thing we've got is that, as, as Justin said, we've got about 150 replies, about half of which are from the US. That means we've got a lot of other currencies represented, but we don't really have enough replies in any given country to meaningfully do something within that country, right? As I say, some are only one reply, some might be five. It's very hard to build up a picture of what a particular industry looks like in in a country with two responses to your survey. So realistically, the only thing we could do, which I didn't want to do when we first started discussing this, was to convert everything into US dollar equivalent using our exchange rate mechanism. And there's, there's, there's just no other option, unfortunately, that I could think of because we just have so little data for some of these other countries. The only, uh, there, there are a few countries where we had a reasonable number of replies. I'm from the United Kingdom, and there were a fair number of replies there. But beyond that, you're looking at up to 10 max in any given country, really. And so we had to do that, which wasn't fun. The second thing is that, has already been said, there's a lot of other things. Several questions in the survey uh, were things like, how, how are you compensated in other ways? Do you get RSUs or stock grants? Do you get insurance cover in the US? Or um, you know, there's a few other countries like that. It, it makes it very, very difficult to do any kind of apples to apples comparison. So whilst we can get a number on the raw salaries, because we can do that with those raw data, and we can do a fair bit with as Justin said, you know, how you feel about your compensation, we'll come to that a little later, because that's actually quite an interesting result. It's very, very hard to compare across countries. I had hoped to do better with that. But realistically, the data is just not there. But I mean, this is a problem that economists deal with on a daily basis. And there's whole armies of people trying to figure out what it what it means, right. And I'm not even an economist, never mind doing that on a daily basis. So I I do the best I can with it. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's going to be crude. And there's no way around that. Um, you know, it's not a smooth paste. It's decidedly chunky. I'd also love to chime in and circle back to the earlier question about some of the questions that were asked, because I think people listening might be curious about that. And so we just talked a whole bunch about compensation, which is obviously that's that's what we're all here for. But we also asked about what country folks are located in, basically where you're based. You know, as Greg pointed out, there was stuff about, you know, bonuses and RSUs. Those those became tricky to really understand. We also asked if people were at public or private companies, public meaning publicly traded companies, the size of their company, the cost of living in their metro, again, whether they feel fairly compensated or not. We asked about job titles. We also asked if coding was required for their position. 
and whether they were people managers, strategic managers, their career level, their type of employment. So are you full-time or a contractor and so forth? Their years at their current job and their years in DevRel, which are two separate measures, as well as you know any areas of expertise, because we're trying to get a little bit of a sense of what are the hot spots and you know what's popping. And then we also we asked about remote, but you know who knew. And as well as ethnicity, we broke out AAPI demographics. Uh, you can reference the move. It's called disaggregate the data which is very important for Asian and Asian American people in our industry, their age range, gender, and sexual orientation. So that's just like a quick overview of what the survey covered. And obviously not everybody always answered every question because sometimes people would decline to answer a particular question. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you sort of helped us break that down a little bit for us to understand kind of like what the questions were. I think one of the sort of topics that you alluded to and the topics that, you know, are certainly like, as you said, we're kind of popping in the industry. This question of the impact on gender and other sort of demographic roles that tend to, uh, as we've seen in many, many other studies, play out negatively for more marginalized folks. I would love to hear more about how, what insights were extracted from those perspectives in the survey? So on the subject of gender, that's uh, still in process. I have not finished that section yet. So the data I've got for you hasn't been vetted by Jocelyn yet. We're a bit on uh, career progression. We've had a bit more discussion about what we're happy with. So this is going to be quite raw, but I've been, I've been going through it in the last week too, just to try and get a feel for where it's at. And, and it's, it's, not very surprising. So first, a note on processing. Again, we're being careful with, with how we treat people's data. And unfortunately, that given the sample size, there's very few people who are not picking, so to say, traditional gender roles here. And so in order to not accidentally identify people, I have gone with basically the people who have identified as male and everybody else which seems, I hope, a reasonable treatment. I'm doing the best I can. I appreciate I am about as privileged as you get. Uh, so uh, so I, I try. If there's better ways to treat that, I absolutely want to hear that. That's, that's where I'm starting from. It gives us a nice binary split in the data. It also comes close to being 50-50 at that point, which gives you a nice way. Because if you only have like five or 10 or 15 votes in one category, it's hard to generalize, right? Um, you, want, you want a nice split. So if you go down that road, you can do some, uh, some nice plots. I'm going to do them right now. Sorry for the keyboard noise, because I want to do these live. So first of all, we can talk about medians. And if you just do the raw data, you, get a, you do get a difference. It's not a huge difference. The median for men is around about $140,000. And for not men, it's $125,000, a $25,000 difference. But there's more going on here, right? There is more we would expect to find. So we can, we can model this. I'm going to run a, run a model in the background right now. So we can look at other things like country will come into effect, right? If men or not are particularly more employed in one or another country, that would have an effect. And we know there's a huge variation across country anyway. So we do kind of have to account for country when we look at the data. So if I go ahead and run a model here, I've got country in it. Let me, let me have a look at this one. If we do this one now, this is, so, so the first graph, I know people listening can't see the graph, so I'm gonna talk through it a little bit. The first one just shows what happens if you just look at men versus not men. And what you see is that if you plot it against country, it's wrong, it's completely wrong. All that variation that we know is there between countries, we know 
that different countries pay different rates has disappeared, right? Because the model's not accounting for it. So we clearly need more things in our model. So if we do it properly and we, we, we add that back in, then we get, there we go. So, so there should be more, that graph hasn't worked properly. But you can see the variation has come back in and it's now correctly looking like the original, like not split data. And we can ask ourselves now, accounting for country, how much of a difference is there? And we would estimate something like a 13% difference, which is a little bit less. We were seeing what more like about 25% difference between the two, just naively looking at the medians. So the model thinks actually maybe a 13% discrepancy between men and not men. And you can keep going with this. You can look at what sort of job role you're in and include that one in, and you can keep this going. The problem is every time you add another predictor into your model, it gets harder and harder because you're getting smaller and smaller buckets. And so you, you can't just throw in all 50 columns of your of your survey and go, what happens? Because the answer will be, yeah, I'm not sure. So we can't do that, but we can pick things that we think are going to be relevant and have a look at those. That appears to be taking forever, so um, I will let, come back to it. Essentially, what I came down to was, yeah, th there is a discrepancy. It's Within a certain confidence range, it's there, but it's it could be anywhere between just a couple of percent up to 20%, something like that. So it, it, there is definitely work to do within the DevRel industry, I think is, is fair to say. But I don't think that's a surprise to anyone, right? Yeah. I, I know that you just mentioned that adding variables at this point in the research is, is going to be a challenge, but we were just curious if there was any sort of insights at this point or TBD about you know how the technicality of gender sort of comes into play because there's a lot of discussion or this narrative in the industry that women tend to be te less technical or non-men tend to be less technical versus their male counterparts. And we're just wondering if that plays out in the data at all, or if we're not at that stage yet to be able to surface that, that's fine too. Super question. Don't have an answer for you yet. Yeah, <laughs> well, we should write that one down. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll wait. Next it, there, we've definitely looked at some of the, we can, maybe we should talk about this. There's definitely some work we've done on the type of role you have and how that affects things. So if I come down here on one of my other documents, so this here, for example, is, is talking about whether or not you said yes to whether coding is required in your job. And then also the, there is a question on whether or not you are a people manager as part of your role. Are you able to hire and fire people? That is one of the columns uh, in the data set. And if you put those two things together, what you find is really interesting because you might expect people who do lots of things to be paid lots of money, right? But the, the, the actual data shows that people who said yes to being able to hire and fire, but no to coding are actually generally paid more than the people who said yes to both. Uh, and to me, that speaks to either the company or the employees, either in one case, not knowing what they're worth or not sure what they're looking for, right? They're putting these kitchen sink adverts out saying, we want somebody who can do everything and we've no idea what it's worth, right? And that is a big problem in an industry that didn't exist until not very long ago. You know, we've had engineers and accountants for decades and hundreds of years, and this is new, right? And nobody knows what they want. They don't know what goes in the job advert. And then the people who know what they want and know what they're worth are going out there and getting it. Uh, and I think that's that's really what this is all about, right? That's what this survey is for. That's why we're doing this podcast. I think that, and it's interesting that the data backs that story up. So we have we have this this uh, question in the in the survey, which asks, "Are you a people manager? Do you have the ability to hire and fire people within your role?" And that is a simple yes/no question. So we can split data on that, and then we also have this question about whether or not you code, and those. Two completely different questions, but the people who do both not being paid as much as the people who are just hiring and firing, they, they know what they're there for. I just wanted to hop in there for a second as well. I know we we talked a little bit earlier about how some of the questions are a little more subjective, some of them are a little more straightforward. 
this, does your job require coding? We actually went back and forth on, Jocelyn, I remember going back and forth on this with a couple of us for a while with like, do we ask, can you code? Are you able to code? Do we ask, is coding required as a part of your job? Do we ask if they've been a developer previously, right? Like, how do we ask that type of a question? And I remember for that specifically, we came back around to, is coding required as a part of your role? Because, you know, I can code together a really janky looking website or step my way through an API. I would never call myself someone who codes on a daily basis at a job. And if a job required coding, I would never take it <laughs> because that's not my skill set. And so there's some of those that we asked in very specific ways that we got some questions around afterward with like, well, but, but I can code, but I don't have to as a part of my job. And we're like, okay, answer it according to your job, right? And so I think there's some of that was fascinating to me to see it play out here. And Greg, to your point earlier, that that specialization, right? Once you get higher in your career and you were a people manager and you were responsible for the strategy of the team and the people on the team, and maybe you don't have to code, but that's at most companies seems to be worth more monetary compensation wise than can you code and are you a people manager and can you do the strategy and all of these things. And so I think so often we, we see that opportunity of, you know, oh, full stack developer, 10x developer, I do all of the things, collect all of the things. And when we look at this limited amount of data, at least it's clear that actually specializing and figuring out what you do best might be the better route for you. Yeah, 100%. I'm so glad you asked that question the way you did, because I don't think the analysis would work if the question was, can I code? Right. Um, or at least the story is nowhere near as strong, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, speaking of questions and how we ask them, it's a nice segue because we'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what do you wish you had asked or what do you think you might ask next time? I, like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. There is so much that you always kind of like, oh, why didn't I ask? You know, I wish that we had asked simply, are you happy? Like, do you feel, are you happy with your career? Or, you know, even do you feel successful? I would love to hear what factors people believe have contributed to their success or lack thereof. And this is something that's sort of a little bit existential. You'll never really know. But what, what you will know is if you feel good about perhaps moving to San Francisco to further your career, like what it's a little bit magical thinking, but it's also like it's a measure of, you know, what are the things that people are doing that let them feel effective? I'd love to know if people expect to be in the field five years from now. I'd love to get a sense of, you know, helping people to make more money. What are some of the effective things you can do to make your professional life suit your the life that you want to lead? And I think that's kind of what we're trying to get at here. So yeah, there's just so much that we can explore the next time around. And I, I really, really, really hope next time around that we can get a much broader representation of humanity. It's tough because the industry is not a representation of humanity, but it would be really great to have a bigger sample size for marginalized folks. That's really amazing. I hope to see this really come to light and really get broad exposure when it becomes uh, public. Before we jump into talking about how and where to find this data, which I know everybody's really excited about, let's chat for a second about some of the hypothetical models that you pulled together, Greg. There's an old adage, right, in, in, in most industries that, that jumping between companies does 
better than staying in one place, right? And so, so the interesting thing is that we can see this. And the way you look at this is a little tricky because when you start building models, right, they become hard to plot. Um, the minute you, you, you can plot two things, right? X and Y, we're good. What about X, Y, Z? What about X, Y, Z and something else? And something else, and something else. The minute you have multiple predictors in your model, it becomes very hard to plot them. So I can look at how long. So, so two questions that were in survey were, how long have you been in your current company, in your current role? And the other one was, how many years of experience do you have? And we can model both of those things. And we would expect both of those things to raise your salary over time. Right? So I can't just pick one of them and plot it because that ignores the effect of the other one. I have to bring both of them in at once. So what do we do? What we do is we do a thing called a counterfactual. I create two hypothetical people. One person stays in place for 12 years in one company, right? And so that's just, I just have like 12 data points, right? It's just like years of experience, one to 12, years in company, one to 12. We're good. That's a person. That's a data set. I can create a second hypothetical person who jumps around. So they still have years of experience, one to 12, but now their years at company goes one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I can plot that, right? And so I can feed that into the model, fake people, fake survey data, feed it into the model, generate me some answers, right? And I can do that. And what that shows is that there is an increase between, uh, th there's an increased effect of jumping between companies. So again, this will be public eventually. But for those people listening, the way it works is that for the first three years, they're pretty much bang on top of each other, as you would expect, because we're feeding it the same data. But as soon as we get to year four, where that second hypothetical person jumps on, it goes up a bit. It go, it, there's a step change in their salary, right? The, the, the person who's staying in one put just drifts on upwards over time. The person who is jumping, and I'm using different symbols for each company they've been at, so you can see what happens as they change company. Every time they change company, there's a step up. The graph changes it quite significantly. Now, I am shading things a little bit from, from a statistical point of view because I'm not plotting the error bars on this, I'm not plotting the confidence intervals, which turn out to be huge because we don't have very much data, right? So knowing where it goes. I, I mean, the, the difference is a matter of $20,000 after 12 years, according to this model, which is a very simple model. And so you may not decide that is worth your effort to keep jumping between companies, but there are other factors as well, other parts of your life. In fact, we talked a little bit about compensation earlier and I said there was an interesting story. So very, very quickly, I just want to show you this here. Yes, you are right. People know if they are undercompensated, and you can see that very clearly. There's a, there's a drift in terms of how much people are paid versus how much they feel about being paid is very clearly linear up to about neutral. And the minute you go into, I'm well compensated, they're all bang on top of one another. As soon as you, you're paid enough, it becomes very hard to tell how much more than enough you are paid. Right. So that's, that's quite interesting that we see that in the data as well. But anyway, to, to return to the, to the modeling point, what I would say is, yes, there is a difference. It does fit what we think we know about how hiring and firing works and moving between companies. It's not a huge effect. And so I would say my takeaway from this would be it's there, it's real, but it's probably not as big as you think. And if you're comfortable where you are and there's no other good reasons, I personally, I'm fairly risk averse. I'm and I've been in my current company for like 10 years. So take that what you will, really. <laughs> I, I particularly, I love this information because I think, especially like I live in San Francisco, I live in startup world, and you hear consistently people switching jobs, DevRel, engineers, everybody like, well, but you know, if you don't switch your job every year and a half, you're not going to progress in your career. And so there's people who will literally plot out like, okay, I've been here for 12 months. I need to start looking for my new opportunity because otherwise my salary won't increase. My job won't increase. My responsibilities won't change. Right. And so I love seeing this plotted out 
even in the hypothetical model that it is right now, because I think for me, I've had that mentality of, well, if I, if I change jobs, I'll, I'll have a potential for more money. Right. And I, I don't like switching jobs. <laughs> I like staying where I am as long as I'm comfortable and things are going well. And so seeing something like that kind of makes me go, okay, well, if, if I'm at a place with a healthy career path and a place that likes to promote from within or give more responsibility and compensate people accordingly, then it's not as big of a deal. My career can still progress. I still can make changes and, and learn and grow. And it's, it's not as, as big of a deal, which is awesome. I will stress, this is a very simple model that does not take account of things like RSUs and insurance and things yes. like that. We must be very careful about giving people advice. Um, I would not want anybody to, to jump too quickly without, without really thinking it through. But yes, for the simple model that we have, that is, that is the conclusion, that it's there, it's real, but it's small. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing that data with us today. I know I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to digging in more. I know we'll be linking to all of the, the blog posts and the data that you're releasing from Community Pulse. So keep an eye out for those links coming in the near future. And in the meantime, I think we're going to move over to checkouts. If you're new to Community Pulse, this is the part of the show where we share some of the things that we're interested in, some resources that we've found, some resources we've created, perhaps things that we're enjoying in our off time. And I think Wesley is going to kick us off with that for today. My checkout is an announcement from HashiCorp's ex-CTO, ex-CEO, still co-founder, uh, Mitchell. His new role is he's moving from an executive leadership into an IC role, an individual contributor. And I think the recognition of moving towards your passion doesn't always mean moving up into leadership or a place where you take the spotlight. I think taking account of what you really want to do. And if it's actually creating code and spending your time really working on the code base is what you want, that is a viable option. So the the hustle economy, the the spotlight chasing kind of highlight reel that we hear on tech and on Twitter and social, it doesn't always have to be the case. And I think this is a great example and allowing people to either take a step back if that's what you see it as or take a step forward into what you really want to do. I think it's a really great example and I'm glad that we have this now in the tech space. Thanks, Wesley. I'll chime in with mine, which is different than usual. I'm usually um, kind of coming in with, you know, comedians, Instagram, people to follow, like just silly things, typically. You can count on me for that. Today, I'm actually going to do a little self-promotion. I'm going to seek the spotlight a little bit. And I know that we're all kind of like on our, our own different path. And it sounds pretty cool that, that Mitchell is like, I don't know. I just feel like a lot of folks are taking this moment, like, as we navigate through the pandemic, I don't want to say that we're anywhere near the end, knock on wood, that we are. But we're certainly all being more self-reflective. So it's great to hear that folks are kind of choosing their correct paths. Anyways, back to my uh, checkout. So I'm super excited because there's been a lot of work internally at MailChimp, which is where I work. And I don't usually talk about where I work on this podcast, but we have launched an engineering blog that is dedicated to elevating the voices of our internal engineering team and talking about really meaty technical problems and challenges, like within the spirit of vulnerability and transparency. And all of those things have been... Um, a fascinating journey for us to sort of advocate for internally. And the fact that it's now live and we have some great posts coming out 
written by our engineers and edited with some amazing folks that we work with at, at an agency called Postlight that has great experience with, you know, tech blogging and all of that. We're seeing some really quality stuff. And so I, you know, I'm a little biased, of course, but I'd encourage you to check it out. We're going to be releasing on a monthly cadence. And that is my checkout for the week. I think we'll hand it over to or sorry, for, for this episode. <laughs> um, I'll hand it over to our next, uh, one of our guests. Greg, do you want to jump in with yours? I can, yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, what to choose from? My goodness, I'm all over the place. Uh, whilst I do data science for the work, my time recently has been spent on a thing called Matrix. If people aren't familiar with Matrix, it's an open source decentralized chat platform think slack in its look but email in its functionality it's decentralized it's federated everybody can talk to everybody else and participate which is lovely and um, so i spent a great deal of time working with our community on on matrix and figuring out if matrix is right for us we are one of those old crafty projects that uses irc at the moment and i would like to change that so um when but the nice thing about matrix is that it is very inclusive it has this concept of bridges and so it can also talk to irc to slack to telegram to discord to wherever your community are. And that is something that I find very useful and very inclusive. So I have been spending a lot of time uh, playing around with Matrix, getting comfortable with that one. I've been a personal user of Matrix for years, but uh, but you know, working out whether that's right for our community, writing long blog posts on the things. Um, I have included a couple of links to some other people's thoughts. So the Mozilla Foundation moved to Matrix a couple of years ago and their, their lead uh, wrote some very nice things about how they found that process. And also one of the GNOME Foundation, GNOME, uh, the desktop environment, they also use Matrix for their communications. And he's had some excellent, excellent thoughts on, on how it all fits together. Um, it's an excellent ecosystem. I'm a huge fan of it. So do check that out if that's of interest to you. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Greg. Jocelyn, do you have a checkout for us today? You know, I've just been doing a lot of interesting conversations with people. And I've sort of been talking to various different startups and almost advising, and it's been really exciting to see how many, because my focus is community, it's been so exciting to see how many startups are understanding now that community is something to bake in from the beginning, particularly because it, you know, the, the formalization of this practice, this field has been such a long time coming. And there have been so many people that have been doing this work, right? And it just wasn't called that, you know? And so to see this, this sort of sea change and this shift in this attitude that this is something that's so important to the vitality of a project and making it successful and that the people in your community are not just customers, they're not just an audience, they literally are a community and that you need to be in community with them is really something that is, it's just so exciting to see close up and to be talking to people as they're, particularly if they're not from this field, as they're trying to feel their way through it and sort of watch the light go on in their eyes as they sort of grasp all the ways that it can lead to new things. So I'm feeling really energized and happy about that. It's fantastic. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. I will round us out with checkouts today. So for a while now, I've talked to a bunch of folks. I think I've mentioned it here before. I know I've talked to other people about it. There's been conversations about needing a, a list of resources for developer relations to answer some of the frequently asked questions to help just kind of have a centralized place that people can go if they're looking for like, what's the five best articles about DevRel metrics or things like that. 
So I finally got something pushed out last week, which I'm super, super proud of. If you Google DevRel resources, it's, if not the top link, at least one of the top links. So if you just type DevRel resources into the address bar in your browser, but it's .es, so put the, the period in there before the ES, that'll take you to the page. And it's part FAQ, part checklist, part curated content. I would love your feedback. And there's also at the top of that page, a, a form that you can fill out to submit additional resources that should be on the page. So I would love to hear from you all and see what I'm missing, what else should be added, and also whether or not it's it's useful for you. And with that, I will hand it off to SJ to wrap us up for today's episode. Thank you, Mary. Very encouraging to hear that we have these sort of like centralized tools and resources that we can use now. Like I feel like this survey is another kind of example of that, of us being able to get together and share our knowledge as an industry in a way that's going to start, you know, or continue to help moving us forward collectively. So that's that's really awesome. Also love the creative usage of international domain extensions. Always a big fan of that. I've got my .is for Sarah Jane Moore.is. Like, thank you, Iceland. Thank you, Spain. <laughs> so I just want to thank our guests so much for coming in and, and, and sharing their insights, sharing this really powerful data for our industry. I think that, you know, this has been a fantastic jumping off point baseline. We can't wait to see how this grows. And I would encourage everyone listening today to stay tuned to sign up for the next survey. We'll definitely including the link for that on communitypulse.io. And I suspect it may find its way to uh, DevRel resources too. So please, please uh, stay tuned for that. And, you know, typically speaking, our co-host PJ frequently wraps up to our episodes. So for those of you who are regular listeners are probably used to PJ kind of wrapping us up with a relevant hip hop quote. And when PJ is not available for the wrap up, I, I try to fill in his, you know, mighty shoes of podcast closings. And I will try to do that today with a quote from the disco songstress, Donna Summer and, you know, trying to make it as relevant to today's conversation as possible. It's simple. She works hard for the money. So hard for it, honey. She works hard for the money. So you better treat her right. And with that, I will salute you all, wish you all a wonderful rest of whatever time it is that you're listening to this podcast and thank our guests once again. And of course, my fellow co-hosts, and we will hear you and potentially see you next time on the Community Pulse. This has been Community Pulse. Learn more at communitypulse.io and on Twitter at community underscore pulse. Your hosts are Mary Thangball, Mary underscore Grace on Twitter, Jason Hand, Jason Hand on Twitter, PJ Haggerty, Asplenic on Twitter, SJ Morris, Sarah Jane Morris on Twitter, and Wesley Faulkner, Wesley83 on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.